Welcome to another edition of Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm Anthony T. In this edition, I will be talking to director Joe Bizarro about his latest film, Brides of Satan. I'll also go into AEW's Blood and Guts and the backlash after that, which yours truly has a problem with certain people in the internet wrestling community about this match. But first, the news. First up, the trailer for the new superhero horror film Venom, Let There Be Carnage, arrived. And yes, it's coming out this year. As Sony Pictures has set a release date for Venom, Let There Be Carnage, it's scheduled to come out September 24th here in the U.S., the trailer looks very good, I have to admit. It kind of interests me, because Venom was a surprise film when it first came out a couple years ago, because I was saying all this negative backlash towards this film from critics, it was bad. I saw this film, it was very surprisingly good. Now, this trailer really looks very good, as I'm very interested to see Venom and Carnage Two of the most violent characters in the Marvel Universe square off. This is a film that looks very good. Tom Hardy is coming back to play Eddie Brock slash Venom. Woody Harrelson is co-starring as Carnage, a.k.a. Cletus Cassidy. This looks like a very interesting film. I like the first Venom. I'm definitely going to see this film, hopefully. But this is slated to be only in theaters, so this will not go on VOD or anything. film also stars Michelle Williams, who is also in the first Venom film, and Naomi Harris. I can't wait to see Venom Let There Be Carnage. It's probably going to do big numbers at the box office, and it's slated to come out September 24th. Next up... Paranormal Activity is coming back. Yes, Paramount Pictures is making another Paranormal Activity film. The good news is, it's coming out before the end of 2021. Bad news is, it's going to premiere on Paramount+. Plus. Why? Really? Why do they have to put a Paranormal Activity film direct to streaming? Seriously, these films work better in a theater. Now, according to BloodyDisgusting.com, the movie was dated for March 4th, 2022, but it got pushed off the calendar. And now, we might not know if this film gets a theatrical release. It's definitely going to be on Paramount+. Plus. Like I said two seconds ago, the Paranormal Activity franchise is effective more in a theater not on streaming i don't get why this film is quite possibly being relegated to streaming because paranormal activity isn't the type of film that may not play well on a regular tv screen but in a theater the film plays very well because you're seeing the film in a very dark room Seeing movies at home kills the film a little bit. Especially a film like Paranormal Activity, where it's meant to be viewed 
on a big screen. Seriously, Paramount. Really? You gonna throw that to direct to streaming now? Are we gonna start a direct to streaming franchise with Paranormal Activity? Because I can tell you it's probably not gonna work if it's a direct to streaming franchise. And yes, Jason Blum is returning to produce it along with his Blumhouse company. The film is going to be written by Christopher Landon, who's behind Happy Death Day and Freaky to write the screenplay. And William Eubank, who directed Underwater, will be directing this film. I don't get it. I don't get if they're going to put this on streaming. I know it's a very crowded field on Halloween this year, especially with Halloween Kills finally coming out. But... Paranormal activity films are meant to be seen on a big screen, not Paramount+. Plus. Really, Paramount? You're going to relegate this franchise to streaming just to see if you can get streaming numbers? I don't think this is going to work out so well. as I don't think that's the type of franchise that's going to drive up subscribers. I'm just telling you the truth, Paramount. In wrestling news, let's start off with WWE. On the April 30th edition of SmackDown, Daniel Bryan lost a title versus career match against Roman Reigns, meaning that he is off SmackDown now. And a couple days after that, come to find out Daniel Bryan's contract with WWE has expired, meaning he's a free agent and can work and show up Anywhere, meaning he could pop up in AEW, New Japan Pro Wrestling, or Ring of Honor. I was surprised that Dana Bryan just let his contract run out because I really thought he was going to stay with WWE. Where do I want to see him land next? I think he'd be better off maybe in AEW, where he can have one more big final run. Ring of Honor, I would love to see that, but I don't think that's going to happen. As not a lot of people know this, Daniel Bryan was one of the founding fathers of the Ring of Honor promotion, which is still going on today. I would love to see him back in Ring of Honor, but I don't think that's happening. He may just end up in New Japan Pro Wrestling, which also may be a better fit for him also, with his style and everything. Or he just ends up retiring. I know he's had injuries throughout the latter half of his career, so I wouldn't be surprised if he retired. Or I could just end up back with WWE. Speaking of WWE, they recently held the WrestleMania Backlash show on May 16th. Don't ask me why they had to add the word WrestleMania to Backlash, because I think it's just a stupid idea. Because I know I'm not getting a WrestleMania-type show. I'm just getting an average B-show. But here are the results for that show. The show started off with a really good Triple Threat Women's Championship match as Rhea Ripley defended the WWE Royal Women's Championship as she beat Charlotte and Asuka to retain the title. Ray and Dominic Mysterio defeated Robert Roode and Dolph Ziggler to become new SmackDown Tag Team Champions. Also in the process, they've become the first father-son duo to win Tag Team Championships in the WWE. Then it was probably the worst match I've seen all year. And I'm going to talk about this because this is ridiculous. 
ridiculous of a match. Seriously. Damian Priest versus The Miz in a Lumberjack match. But the Lumberjacks were, wait for it, zombies. As the zombies were the Lumberjacks in the match. What the bleep. Seriously. This made no sense. With any of the storyline in the Miz versus Damian Priest feud. This was just done to promote a two and a half hour zombie movie called Army of the Dead starring Dave Batista, which I want to see, but I do not need to see zombies in WWE. I'm sorry, this is going way over the line, and this is the same company that higher ups called AEW's Blood and Guts match, a match that set the industry back 30 years. Damian Priest versus Miz set the wrestling industry back 30 years because it was cheesy. It was really bad. You can't even suspend disbelief. I'm sorry. I do not need to see zombies in a wrestling match. It's ridiculous. It never works. And it really ruined any momentum for Damian Priest and any momentum for The Miz. As this was just bleeping stupid. And by far one the worst match I've seen on pay-per-view this year. And this might be one of the worst matches of the year. Because this is just downright dumb. Who in their right mind would think zombie lumberjacks would be a good idea. You should just promote the movie and that's it. Not promote it to the point where we need zombie lumberjacks. I don't mind horror and wrestling intersecting with one another, but this is just so dumb and just, just don't buy it from a wrestling point of view. And WWE WrestleMania Backlash is wrestling, not a horror movie. Wake up, Vince. After that, Bianca Belair defended the SmackDown Women's Championship versus Bayley in a very good match. Bobby Lashley defended the WWE Championship by defeating Drew McIntyre and Braun Strowman. And in the main event, a very good one, Roman Reigns versus Cesaro. This is probably the best I've seen Roman Reigns wrestle, as he and Cesaro had a great match. Cesaro should be up in the upper echelon of this company. And he really proved it in this match. The post-match, I did not like at all. After the match, Jey Uso attacked Cesaro. Then Seth Rollins came out to attack Cesaro even more. Just overbooking. This pay-per-view should just ended with Roman Reigns holding the title high in the air. I don't know why they need to add stupid stuff like this. It's a perfect way to end the pay-per-view. Instead, we're going to get more of Seth Rollins versus Cesaro, which I really don't believe needs to continue, but we're getting another match. In AEW news, the first ever Blood and Guts match was held in AEW history on the May 5th episode of Dynamite, where the pinnacle of MJF, Wardlow, Sean Spears and FTR defeated the inner circle of Chris Jericho, Sammy Guevara, Jake Hager, and Proud and Powerful. That was a very good match. 
I really liked the match, but all the controversy from this match is the ending, which I will talk about next segment. In more AEW news, on the May 12th edition of Dynamite, Miro became the new TNT champion by defeating Dobby Allen in a very good match. I kind of like the title change because Miro is a great heel. He really excels at being the monster type heel. And giving him the belt really helps establish his character as for the Beginning of his run, he was more of a comedy character. Now they've really gotten into the monster persona of Miro, which really suits the character very well. As I thought his whole thing with Kip Sabian was just wasting Miro's talents. But thankfully now he's a singles wrestler again. And they've really given him the TNT title, which I hope will establish him into the top tier in AEW. Because he is very good at being a monster heel. And at some point, we need to know if Miro was one of those guys that WWE dropped the ball on when he was Rusev there. And by giving him the same monster-like persona that Rusev was in WWE, it will only help establish Miro as a monster heel and maybe be one of those top guys that he should have been in WWE but wasn't. So I really liked this title change as it really gives a chance for Miro to become a top star. Finally, which he could not do with the way WWE was booking things with his character over there. Also, the card for Double or Nothing, which takes place May 30th on pay-per-view, is coming together. As a lot of matches were announced on the May 12th and May 19th editions of Dynamite, the card will feature the return of the Casino Battle Royale, You'll also have Hangman Page versus Brian Cage, Cody Rhodes versus Anthea Ogogo, the Inner Circle versus the Pinnacle in a rematch of Blood and Guts, with the stipulation is if the Pinnacle win, the Inner Circle must break up. And this match will be a Stadium Stampede match. DAW. Women's Championship will be on the line as Hukara Shida will defend against Dr. Baker. Sting and Dobby Allen will take on All Ego Ethan Page in Scorpio Sky. Miro will defend the TNT Championship against Lance Archer. The Young Bucks will defend the AEW Tag Team Championship against John Moxley and Eddie Kingston. And in the main event of Double or Nothing, Kenny Omega will defend the title in a triple threat match versus Pac versus Orange Cassidy. Now, this match happened after the May 12th match between Pac and Orange Cassidy went to double countout when Pac knocked out Orange Cassidy. And then Pac got attacked by Kenny Omega with the championship belt. With both Pac and Orange Cassidy not answering the 10 count. Leading the match to be a draw. Then it was announced that a triple threat was made for the AEW world title. 
Now, we don't know the status of Orange Cassidy, as he was knocked out during the match legit. So the status is unknown for Orange Cassidy, but it looks like he'll be able to do the match. So we'll have a triple threat main event. And with that, that's the news. Dark Discussions, your place for the discussion of horror film, fiction, and all that's fantastic. A weekly podcast here, the discussion is about the most recent horror and genre films. Intelligent talk on a genre that deserves intelligence. A conversation between co-hosts discussing not only the film, but also the connotation that the directors and screenwriters are trying to articulate. When you want more than a review, listen to Dark Discussions. Speaking of perception, there's just one more scene I want to talk about, which is after Caleb discovers that Kyoto's a robot, Kyoto kind of peels off her skin, showing him what's underneath. Now, wait a minute. I know where you're going with this, but tell me you weren't already thinking this 15 minutes earlier in the film. Exactly what he's thinking at that moment. Which is he's a robot, too. Oh, I consider the possibility. Right, and that's what I like, is the fact that the writers are smart enough to know that this is what the audience would be thinking. We've all seen Blade Runner. <laughs> right, exactly. www.darkdiscussions.com Wherever podcasts are found. Welcome back. Now the main 5th edition of AEW Dynamite featured the first ever Blood and Guts match. Now you're saying what is Blood and Guts? It's basically... An old school WCW War Games type of match where they have two rings inside a steel cage with the roof on the cage. It is as old school as you can get. The match itself was very good. I had a great time watching this match. It had a great old school wrestling feel to it. A lot of blood. It delivered on that. Obviously, the action was intense. Match, which delivered in my eyes, but the only thing I heard everyone talking about after the end of the match was Chris Jericho's fall off the top of the cage. Now, this is what happened. Both Jericho and MJF were at the top of the cage. MJF threatened to throw Jericho off the cage unless the inner circle surrendered, which they did. But MGF still threw Jericho off the cage. When he fell off the cage, a lot of people were not happy with the fall because as the safety of the wrestlers should be first. But there was a lot of complaining from the internet wrestling community saying, Oh, it's it's cheap and it's exposing the business. But here's the thing. Sure, I would have rather seen a better camera angle to cover up the cheap padding. But at the end of the day, I care about the wrestlers in the ring performing dangerous stunts like that. As their safety, like I said before, comes first. But the internet wrestling community didn't think that way as they were literally ripping that end to shreds. Seriously, this is the same 
internet wrestling community that hopped on AEW when Matt Hardy fell from a ladder, missed the table, and hit the concrete floor. These people were complaining that, oh, they don't care about the safety of their wrestlers. And when AEW cares about the safety of their wrestlers, the internet wrestling community is so up in arms. It's like, their complaint felt like they really wanted to see Chris Jericho severely injured. But you have to take into consideration the guy's age. He is not in his 20s or early 30s. He's about almost 50 years old, people. And the body tends to break down around that time for a wrestler. A lot of wrestlers retire before 50. Jericho is just amazing that he continues to put on quality matches at his age. But to complain about a company that was trying to protect one of their wrestlers, also you fans can have something spectacular. It's ridiculous. It's like, to me, it felt like they wanted this guy to fall on concrete or fall on a steel stage. You can't have that way because the guy will get hurt. It's just aggravating to see that. Yes, they should probably have done another camera angle instead of the camera angle they used. But I am not going to fault AEW for trying to protect their wrestlers. After the fact that the same people complained at All Out about the Mahati fall. Because he fell on concrete. I even thought that was too much. Which felt disturbed a little bit. But I'm not going to get on AEW's case for this one. There is no way because they were trying to protect their wrestlers. And safety comes first. I don't get why fans don't realize it. Seriously. You had a great match. It was old school wrestling inside two rings inside a steel cage. It was intense. You had a lot of bloody spots. It was what an old school match felt like. Not like what WWE does with war games where they get rid of the roof and they have spectacular flips and dives. It's great to have spectacular flips and dives. Don't get me wrong. But you want AEW to just copy and paste what WWE does? You can't do that. If you do that, you're not separating yourself from WWE. It felt like a lot of WWE marks were just complaining at AEW. Because wrestling can be all types. I like AEW because it focuses more on wrestling instead of WWE, which they focus on annoying storylines and repeated matches every other week. There is no saying you can't please everyone, but when you're blasting a company that did a spot with all the safety precautions and the safety precautions were exposed... I just don't get you, fans. It comes off as fans just wanting to see someone end up in a wheelchair. And that, I don't want to see any wrestler end up in a wheelchair. So I am not going to criticize companies that accidentally exposes crash pads for 
the safety of their wrestlers. Because I don't want to see anybody in a wheelchair. I don't watch wrestling just to see someone get severely injured. I watch wrestling because I want to be entertained. I want to have a fun time. I want the time to go by quick. But there are some fans in the internet wrestling community that is just can't please at all. And it goes back to the whole all-out incident with Matt Hardy and Sammy Guevara. You guys complained when Matt Hardy took a fall off a ladder and hit the concrete. And now you're complaining Jericho falling off the cage onto a crash pad? Give me a break. I do not want to see anybody in a wheelchair. I don't want to see Jericho's career ended like that. A legendary career like Chris Jericho has had. But it angers me that I have to take time out of my podcast to talk about people who don't care about the safety of wrestlers. You can be angry at the way the camera work or the way that AEW chose to film that spot, but you can't complain about a company that is trying to protect its wrestlers from serious injury. This is not the 1990s anymore. It's 2021, people. Safety comes first. Hey guys, this is Steven Christina. I'm the founder, owner, creator, and host of Super Retro Throwback Reviews. Are you looking for the best movie reviews, music reviews, video game reviews, and Comic-Con coverage all around? Well then look no further. Definitely check out Super Retro Throwback Reviews on YouTube and our new audio podcast, the new and improved Super Retro Throwback Reviews Audio Files version 2.0 on the following media distributors. Podbean, Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Welcome back to Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. I'm here with director Joe Bizarro, director of the new film Brides of Satan, which is being released by Dockside Releasing. How are you doing today, Joe? Joe Bizarro. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Anthony, thanks for having me, man. This is really cool and exciting, and I'm happy to be here. I'm doing great. Thank you for reaching out and uh, offering me a little spot to talk to you on your show. You're welcome. What made you get into directing? Oh, man. Uh, You know, I've always liked films and filmmaking, and uh, I started getting into filmmaking as a very young kid, to be honest. Uh, We had a VHS camera in the house, made a lot of ninja movies with my brother and with my friends in the woods, we were very kind of into Rambo and Best of the Best, all those old ninja movies and kung fu and karate movies. And uh, I think I had a high eight camera when I was in either out of high school or just started college. Did video all through college. Video is all I've really done. And so, yeah, I mean, that's just been kind of my life really since I was a kid creatively. And uh, I was always into art and the arts and being an artist, but video is the one thing that always stuck for me. And so, uh, in turn, I definitely have become a bit of a writer, director, producer. That's just kind of grown out of my fascination and love for the moving image. Brides of Saint is your first feature film. Tell everyone about the film, which is currently being released by Dockside Releasing. 
Well, Brides of Satan is essentially a revenge film about a sweet young couple on the verge of love that have uh, a celebratory night and their night gets cut uh, short by a vengeful cult of sadistic strippers. And uh, that's kind of what kind of sets it all off, sets off the narrative. And then the film from there, I've heard some people describe it as a fever dream. It's, it's very visual, very colorful, lots of rock and roll music. I like to sometimes refer it to as a, a, a rock and roll musical. It's not really a musical, but it's got a lot of music in it, a lot of energy, a lot of color, and it's a very visual film for the short, low-budget movie that it is. We made the film for a very small amount of money, about you know under $20,000, to be honest. So um, really happy with the way it turned out, the way it looks, and just, you know, the whole... The whole gamut of it, the the pace and the rhythm and the film itself, we're, we're really pleased. What was it like getting the budget for the film? What budget? For your film, Brides of Satan. Uh, I was being sarcastic. There really was no budget. There was no investor. There was there were there were there were meetings with investors and there were phone calls and there were a lot of people trying to help us out. But it was a lot of bullshit. I remember I had a professor I want to give a shout out to back early on in college named John Bond, Cleveland State University. And he said, uh, it's all bullshit till it happens was one of the first things that I heard in film school. And it really is. So there was no money. There were no investors. There was no money. Um, no matter what we did or tried to do, we did do an Indiegogo campaign and uh, it was a complete disaster. We raised maybe two or three thousand dollars, I think, at the most, which yeah, that's not a disaster. It's three thousand dollars more than you had, but for the amount of work that it took and for the amount of work that it takes, it's just really not worth it. And I know, actually, I let some people down in that campaign. Uh, Mike Demars, if you're listening, this one's for you, man. Thank you for making that contribution. I know that we didn't get everything that you wanted to, but it's it's tough. Uh, what I'm saying is. Raising money is ext- extremely hard to do, and in this case, we didn't have any budget. We never raised anything. It became more of mostly myself and my my co-creator, my co-partner, um, and cinematographer Noel Maitland. We would save our money and say, "Okay, we've got two thousand bucks, we've got three thousand bucks, or we've got thirteen hundred bucks. This is how much we can we can take this money and build this budget and shoot this scene or this weekend." We did the film in eight days, about seven and a half, eight days, but it was spread across five years because we never really had uh, any investor money. How did you come up with the title of the film? As to me, the title has a 70s exploitation feel to it. Well, Anthony, you nailed it. It's definitely a 70s exploitation kind of film. It's definitely a 70s exploitation kind of title. It's very exploitive, man. I mean, like, Brides of Satan, it definitely catches your attention, right? And I was at first a little nervous that we might be a little too over the top. We wouldn't be able to go into blockbusters or, or not blockbuster, excuse me, Walmarts. In fact, Fries of Satan is in the last blockbuster, but subtext. Uh, Walmarts, Barnes and Nobles. I was afraid that we wouldn't be able to get carried by a distributor with that name, but it turns out it won't be an issue. But to answer your question, it was really mostly a marketing thing. The title came before the movie and we had learned from a friend or, kind of heard this like joke from a friend 
that we had met at a horror that I'd met at a horror convention who said that uh, the best way to get one of a great way to, to get out to a distributor or to get the eyes of a distribution company is to have your letter start with A, B or C because it's the first on the shelf. So and you'll see a lot of that in cinema. You'll see a lot of movies in indie films. You'll see people change their titles from one thing to another. In fact, let me use an example to give a shout out to my good friend Lance Pollan, an associate producer. He had a movie called The Doomed, which is this like astronaut movie, space science fiction thing, picture. And uh, eventually to sell the film, they had changed it to another Plan 9 from outer space. Not Plan 9, but another Plan 9. And I don't know if that, that was part of their strategy, but that puts their title right at the top of the shelf. So it's the first thing that people will see when they go to rent it or buy it when the new releases come out. And so Brides of Satan... Long story short, was kind of just a marketing uh, tactic. The film has a surreal and exploitation tone to it. What made you want to do that type of film for your first feature instead of something basic? You know, in hindsight, I wish I would have done something much more basic. It might not have, stand, have stood out as well, but um, it, it might not have been a bad idea to do a little less than what I did. But I, I do, I, I take that as a compliment, the surreal context. And, uh, I, I, I love this, I love surreal films. I love surrealism. And I love that, uh, that element of the film. I think it really helps create this fever dream or this world that you kind of become a part of. I feel like that movie really has a, has a way of kind of sucking the viewer into this world that it's created. It, it becomes its own space. And so I, I really like that kind of stuff. What's the writing process like? Long, long and extraneous. Uh, that script went through a ton of different versions before becoming what it was. And after all those tons of versions happened and literally year, probably years of writing, over a year of writing, the main script kind of got thrown out of the window because I had realized as a low budget filmmaker that when you have even ideas in your mind that you think you can facilitate images that you have in your mind that you want to create. Sometimes having $500 or $1,000 or $50 isn't enough. And so your images fall flat or your, your movie falls flat. Your creation kind of falls flat. So for me, it, it, all, it, it became budgetary with that film. The writing process was really difficult. And what ended up happening was we threw the whole script away after shooting probably the first day or two. And then we, we wrote the film as we went along. We would continue to look at what we have, do an edit, gather our money. It's kind of the same story that I keep telling. It sounds redundant, but it was like we didn't have money, so we'd raise it, and then we'd shoot. And so we'd have all this time to reflect and look at the cut and cut and clean and color. We didn't color but we would tweak it out and we would just do different stuff with it and look at what we had. And that, that really influenced the writing process and essentially became an experimental writing film. We wrote the movie as we shot it, Anthony. What was it like writing it as you shot the film? Like, you mean? Compared to the regular writing process. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll say it's actually kind of, it was kind of freeing. You wonder what you're going to get. You wonder if it's going to work out. But you just gotta have faith, I guess. You just kinda, you kinda do put all your eggs in one basket, right? So, 
I feel like it was fun. It was kind of fun to do that. It was challenging, but kind of writing the movie as you go, it's an exercise. It's just an exercise. And I feel like it was a good choice for this, considering the fact that we were just under... I I hate to just keep harping on the fact that we didn't have a budget. I feel like that's what I do. I need to get out of that. But um, we just didn't have a budget. So it was everything was budgetary. The film is separated by chapters. What made you want to tell the film's story that way, compared to a traditional film? Well, I think that... uh. That I just I've kind of answered that question just by explaining how it was done, you know, through time and through, with money. We we just we went as we went on. So we would develop the chapters and say, okay, well we've got all this footage, we're going to put it here. We've got all this footage, we're going to put it here. And we we would I mean we sh- really actually shot it in order completely, but we shot it out of order as well. We would add characters that didn't exist and put them in before. So that's how the chapters kind of came about. And they also you know. We're a pretty blatant, obvious homage in our minds to Quentin Tarantino's Kill Bill series. You know, had a lot of that going on. And this movie kind of has a lot of that kind of Kill Bill vibe where it's, you know, a revenge film and a female, strong female lead, things like that. Now I'm going to dive into a little spoilers into the beginning of the film. Sure. The film has an interesting open as you have an actor delivering a monologue that is like a Christopher Lee or Vincent Price type of monologue. What made you want to start the film that way? Uh, I love Christopher Lee and Vincent Price. That's one of the reasons. I love those guys, and I love those films, and I like the way that those films start. You know, and if I'm being totally honest, it might have been a little bit of a time stretcher, but that was actually one of the original scenes that actually we did have early, early on in the script that stayed intact with the movie. In fact, you know, that was within the first 15 minutes. And so when you look at that film, the first 15 minutes of that film was all shot in one day. That scene and everything else within like the first, you know, 13, 15 minutes. And then everything else departed. But uh, that was Rick Gallagher who played that role. And uh, he kind of did his um, Vincent Price thing. Originally that scene, we were at one point in talks with Corey Feldman's management to have Corey Feldman be that character. How weird would that have been? And then I remember also at one point I had reached out. I was really trying to get that scene played by John Waters because I think John Waters would have been really great. I'm a big John Waters fan, but um, Rick Gallagher uh, is a great actor. He, I met him at monster Palooza and he used to play this character called, um, Man, what was it called? I think like Grim the Undertaker, something the Undertaker. And he would do these Hollywood ghost tours and he would like dress up. The guy is just a vaudevillian kind of mastermind. And I hope he hears this because uh, I want to sing his praises. Rick Gallagher is really awesome. And he not only played that part of the Vincent Price character, but he makes another appearance later on in the film as the carny that stands outside and says, step right up, step right up, and he gets shaken down by uh, the main character, if you recall that scene. That was the same actor. You also have the opening credits 15 minutes into the film. What made you decide to put the opening credit sequence there instead of, say, like five or ten minutes into the film? It's It's called a cold open, you know? It's called a cold open. It's just a technique and that's done in film. Sometimes you, 
do a setup that's extra long and then bam, there it is. In fact, that movie's got like, I feel like it says Brides of Satan too, too, too many times in it. I think it says it two or three times. Um, but you know, once again, it really was, it just came down to the way we put it together based on our, our budget, based on piecing it together day by day and, uh, it becoming this kind of mutating, morphing, experimental film. You're also the casting director for the film as well. What made you want to cast the film yourself? Was that, did you read that on IMDb or did you read that in the credits? I, I might read it on IMDb. Yeah, so IMDb is not always accurate. And if Ellie Church is listening, which I know she isn't, but if she, anyone hears this that knows Ellie Church, she asked me to take her off the IMDb. And I have been trying for years. But the IMDb is like the, the Bermuda Triangle sometimes, and it's impossible to change information on there. It becomes this misinformation highway for entertainment. Also, shout out to Lisa Lee who helped me. <clears throat> Lisa Lee who helped me with the IMDb. And uh, yeah, I was the casting director, technically, completely 100%, but I never credited myself as the casting director. So it's interesting that you had asked that question because... Um, unless it was on IMDb, I never took that credit. In fact, a lot of the credits in the movie are me just making fake names of myself. The film has a mix of indie cult horror stars and adult film actors. What made you decide to cast those in that direction? Well, Anthony, I don't know. I would say, uh, you know, variety is the spice of life, my man. Have you ever heard that quote before? Yes. I feel like that's kind of the direction I wanted to go. I wanted to give it some variety, and I wanted to give it a lot of a, a different mix of different people and players and looks and characteristics and colors and vibes. And uh, that was kind of my direction. And also, you know, I just think it was a cool marketing idea. What was the toughest role to cast? Toughest role to cast was probably Lenny Lester, uh, the old man who kind of is a guide for um, Mary, our main character. He was a tough one. I ended up finding him at a karaoke bar and he was a kind of a non-actor who had just like done some soap opera stuff, older guy. And so that was kind of me working with a real life kind of just like non-performer, non-actor in a serious role. Yeah, he was kind of one of the people that shined in that film. I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I really like him too. And I think his scene, his scene really gives the movie a lot of character and, and makes, I think, I think the thing that, that his scene, his scenes really do are help anyone who's watching the movie connect with the movie, connect with a uh, character and connect with the story and kind of get sucked into it and have emotion, uh, emotional attachment. And I think that that, uh, you know, I think that was a very, a very strong device that we used. And I think he did a great job and his name is John Troyer. Um, and you could probably find him, out in Burbank somewhere singing Roy Orbison songs on the karaoke jukebox. So, John, uh, cheers to you. We love you. What was filming like once you got to filming this film? Sorry, what do you what do you mean? What were some things that happened during filming, like some of the pitfalls? Oh, okay. Some of the things that you cherished on set? Okay, that's a good question. I'll give one great example where I remember... We were shooting in the junkyard 
and we were shooting in this great junkyard and we did, we were just like, um, we just cut a little too thin. We got thinned out too much. I had my first AD, uh, Joel Dobbs, good friend of mine, great assistant director. And he was not only playing the part of the AD, but he was also one of the bad guys in the, uh, what's that gang called? Uh, man, there's all these funny gangs. It's one of the garbage gangs, the garbage punks or something. I can't even remember anymore. The neon punks. But, uh, so Joel is out there in, in most of my clothing and he's playing one of the bad guys and they're trying to kill, beat up the old man and they have this big showdown and it's blood, blood, really bloody. This guy's probably laying on the ground. We're probably in our ninth hour of, of the shoot. The sun's kind of pretty much going down. We're really kind of stressing out. We're, we're losing time. We're losing daylight and we're covering Joel in blood and he's getting sand thrown on him. And I'm, I'm, you know, this is breakneck speed directing and filmmaking where we're just like, go, 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 go. I mean, really at this point, we're just slamming through shots as fast as we can. Try not to strangle each other. Really. If you can imagine people trying just to not to strangle each other while they hold video cameras and stay calm because we're just like going so fast. And so the whole time that this dude's getting bloody and sand kicked on him, his phone's ringing probably in his pocket on mute or on vibrate. And our next actresses that we really wanted to do a scene with are like locked outside of the gate of this weird high profile junkyard out in the, out in the IE inland empire, California. So Unfortunately, that night we weren't able to get, uh, Josie Germs and Carla Vortex, Kitty Vortex, Carla Vortex, uh, into the film. And I, just stuff like that. Like, I remember just feeling so shitty about that, that they got locked outside. But that was one story where on set something kind of shitty happened because, you know, it just does. What was it like trying to keep your core cast together? While taking so long to film Brides of Satan. Shit, man. Uh, I got very lucky with just everyone. I got lucky with Mindy. I got lucky with Joanna. I got lucky with Alice. Really lucky with Alice. Everybody just kind of stuck with it. But really, if you really look at it, it's only a few characters. It's the, the lead evil and the lead good. The good, the good and evil are the two that I really had to worry about. And they, you know, they just, they stuck with me. They, we stayed in touch and they were always just so awesome. Both Alice and Mindy were great to work with. Very professional, always on time, always there. And, you know, what's amazing too is like, they're very different. They're very different people. Extremely different. I don't want to get into politics. I don't want to get into semantics, but I will say they're just like, you couldn't, they're polar opposites in a sense. Yet they were able to get, totally get along on set work well together, be professional. There was never any headaches. There was never any stress. So I got lucky with them. Um, the one thing that I will say, I remember, you know, as you do a movie for five years, especially with people in the film industry or the entertainment industry, their people's looks change. So, you know, Malice's hair, you know, you, Anthony, you saw the film. So like, it's fun to expose these secrets to people. Um, you know, when you see her in the very opening scene, she's got the giant mohawk while she's on the stripper pole. And then she's got the mohawk when she they do the, the scene in the club with the couple. And then 
a little bit later, there's a whole other thing, right? And they like they they pop out the door, like it's like a couple minutes later, right? Remember they like abduct them and they pop out the door. Remember that part? Yes. So when they pop out the door, it's like two, three, two and a half years later. I don't even remember. Two years later, they pop out that door. It's two fucking years later. It's two seconds in the movie. It's two years in real life. And her hair was a different color. It was yellow and black instead of pink and purple or whatever the hell it was. And it was this giant thing where Malice was like, you know, I don't want to change my hair. This shit's expensive. Blah, blah, blah. It's a pain in the ass. I was like, I understand. Don't let me lose you from this movie because of your fucking hair. And so we worked it out. She was super cool. But we ended up just like, right as you watch that scene, and it's funny, you'll never, you don't think about it until I tell you this now. And I love the way that psychology of these things can work in films. As they're breaking that door open, she's literally pulling the hood down over her head to cover her hair up. So we were like, as you walk out, pull your hood down. And that's going to get us through the whole next I don't know, year and a half of that movie until her hair changed again. Also in that scene, I noticed there was a different actress playing one of her henchmen as well. Well, fuck, man. You're the first person that's called it out. So I, um, I'm passing the trophy to you because you're the first person that's called me on that one so far. Um, you're absolutely correct. And in that opening scene, in the very first 15 minutes, we had Rachel Rampage, who was a, an adult, adult actress who was, is a Canadian. And she was over here and she did the movie, you know, as a favor. And then she was back in Canada when we were ready to shoot again. And it was just the scheduling didn't work out and we couldn't get her back. But we weren't going to wait years and years for, you know, we weren't, we, we, we had to go. We had to go. So we, we made it work and we brought, Another actress in named uh, Amalea Dark or Susie Q. Williams. I don't know what she's going by these days, who was a fetish director um, and cinematographer. And she we we just did the whole thing. We tried to just like do her up and we made it look the best that we could. And that was actually a recommendation from Joanna Angel, who played the, uh, you know, the co-part in that scene. And Joanna mentioned how it had been done on the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. We were in a conversation. She's like, they did it on the Fresh Prince. Like, you know, you can do it. The people won't notice. And to be honest with you, man, I, I've shown that movie to, I don't know how many people now, you know, friends and family, and no one's ever noticed it. So you are the first person that has spotted it, and thank you. What was the toughest scene to shoot? Uh, toughest scene to shoot? Um, probably... Uh, action scenes are always tough when you don't really know what you're doing. Luckily, we did have a stunt coordinator on one of the action days, but um, most of the action stuff we were kind of just making up by the seat of our pants. The demon at the end, they were makeup all day for that, obviously. And then, you know, just trying to move that person around in that in that suit, Draco Rex and Thomas Surprenant, trying to get that whole thing going. No fault of their own. It's just it's slow. So the toughest scene was when we tried to make the demon head explode. And there were a lot of debates on how to do it. Different people had different um, kind of tactics. But what we ended up with didn't in the end work. So we, we had this whole head explosion at the end that was practical. We built the head and stuffed it with a bunch of goo and um, had, I think, like a high compression big tanks for lack of whatever they call them. And it, it didn't really work out. So we ended up having to 
do that scene kind of half digital, half real. It's definitely not what we intended. I think the demon head explosion was the hardest scene to shoot. And, you know, note to all filmmakers, young filmmakers, anyone listening that hasn't done it before. Practical effects are awesome and they are superior and they kick ass. I shouldn't say they're superior, but they're great. Everyone loves practical effects over CGI, but it's just a time intensive thing. And it's not something that you can do in your, an hour 11 when you have the space booked for a, you know, eight and a half or a 10 hour deal. Another thing that I really liked about this film was the film's score from the Jimmy C. How did you find him? As I thought the score added to the film. Not only did that score add to the film, it was the blood and guts of that movie, man. That score by the Jimmy C is fantastic. That is one very, very extremely talented musician. I found him on Facebook years back when I was just starting, when this was just kind of a seed in my brain. And I posted a post being like, you know, I'm working on some stuff. And I think he got either he got back to me or I might have found him from digging around because he had done something called like the adventures of the super seven. He had done some spy record or something that for someone else and the Jimmy C man, I don't want to, I don't want to miscorrect where he is, but he's in Australia. I don't remember what city he's in. I think he's in Melbourne. The Jimmy C is Australian. And so he's out there in Australia. He found me online. I've never met him in the flesh, but I've talked to him many times on the phone and through Skype and Zoom. And he's just a fantastic, charming man. And he's just a great, he's just a great artist. And he played every single instrument on that score, man. I mean, he sang bass, guitar, drums, real drums, not digital drums. And he mixed the whole thing. And he'd send us these songs back in like, I, I, I can't express how much gratitude I have towards the Jimmy C and how influential he was to just keeping me inspired to keep going on this film. It was like when someone, when you're starting to question what you're doing and then someone just comes and gives you this beautiful gift that just reminds you that what you're doing, people like and believe in that was the Jimmy C that dude is just He's just a musical genius, and I'm indebted to him forever. The Blu-ray for Brides of Sin also has a short film called Ride Roommates, which you can also check out on Joe Bizarro's YouTube channel. How did you come up with the Twisted Short? Oh, I'm glad that you brought that up, because Ride Roommates is fun. Um, there's a bit of a story to this one, and I'll... I'll try to make it quick. My, my co-writer for Brides, Noel and I, we had written another script called Fuzzies, which is not about people uh, in fuzzy clothing humping each other, but more about this uh, alien life form, criminal alien life form that escapes from another planet, makes it to, you know, Earth. And it's kind of like, I don't want to give too much away, but, um, and becomes this kind of like critter's ghoulies kind of like creature feature fun comedy we spent uh, probably a good six months on that script and the art uh monster mark kosabucky did our art for us for that and so that's like a script that has been kind of sitting on the shelf for a while probably for a couple of years now while we were doing brides so you know while we're waiting to secure this money we would write other scripts so fuzzies is out there and I hit up this dude named John, uh, Zorro. Let's just call him Zorro. His name is Zorro. 
he's this punk rock dude from the UK. And he played in a punk rock band called One Way System. And uh, I met him at, I also met him at Monster Palooza right when I was, yeah, right when I was kind of getting bride started. And so I met Zorro and this guy, John Grimm. And Grimm, Zorro's friend, is actually, if you recall, Anthony, the guy that is like the, in the very beginning of the movie, he's like the punk dude with the liberty spikes and the vampire teeth. You kind of can't miss him. He's got vampire teeth. Anyways. So that was John Grimm, friend of John Zorro. Turns out, I talked to, keep talking to Zorro through the years, and he came to set on the third day and played one of the neon punks. So he's in the neon punk scene. He's the guy that says, this is neon territory. They all say that. So John Zorro, uh, Zorro shows up, and he does the neon punk scene, and then later on we get to talking, and I say, hey, I got this idea for this thing called Fuzzies. And I, I'm sharing the script with him, and we talked about the Boglin these Boglin characters that are these like puppety rubbery things from like the eighties, late eighties, early nineties, maybe. And there's like, you know, collectors groups and stuff for the Boglins. And we were like, let's make these Boglin type monsters and we'll try to do this thing. And originally in the fuzzies, there were three characters, you know, like a red, purple and a green one. I can't remember. But so Zorro and I had been working on this for years and it years and years and years had gone by like literally and finally, one day we get to meet up with him and we find the fuzzy and, the, and we see the fuzzy and, you know, he made the fuzzy and it, it was good. It was beautiful. It was ready to go. It, we thought it was cool. We like wanted to shoot some stuff with it, but he was a little too attached to it. He was like, really didn't want to let it go after like four years of prep. And I, I had, you know, invested in it a little bit as well, giving him some money to make it. But, um, he was just so in love with this thing. So as we were there that day, we were like, we can't take it away from him. We're going to have to rethink fuzzies. Maybe let's put that on the back burner. And let's just let's just not think about that right now. Let's worry about getting brides done and getting through this. And so what happened was, we after we came to that conclusion, I had, gone, I had to leave L.A. for whatever reason. I was traveling. And uh, I put a little bit of money to hire my great buddy, uh, Paul Gonzalez. And we got Kelsey Miguel, very talented actress, and uh, our friend Sam Capaldi, who's also plays one of the Savage Six punks in Brides of Satan. And we got put something together for I think like three, three or four hundred bucks, and brought everyone over to Zorro's house, and brought the crew over there, and let them just do some puppet stuff for the day, and shot you know a couple scenes in like a couple, I don't know, probably two hours. So and that became Rad Roommate which was an idea from you know my co-creator, Noel Maitland. So I'm sorry for this little long story, but it's interesting how that came about. It kind of came about from something falling apart and us saying, you know, just because this door is closing, maybe we can open this other door and make this other little thing. And, uh, you know, it was inspired by Alf and all those like, I don't know, just like all those weird old shows that would have, what was that show, ha- Unhappily Ever After? With Bobcat Goldwaith, the voice of the bunny, and uh, that really beautiful um, redhead. Some people remember it, you know. So I know I'm rambling on, but I'm waxing poetic on Rad Roommates, how it happened, why it happened, and the things that it was inspired by. Any plans on revisiting that in the future? You know, I um, it didn't. We put it on YouTube just for fun, and it didn't really get a whole lot of clicks, and that's okay. You know, not everything does. But uh, 
if we were to get anybody who was interested in making that into some kind of a series or, uh, I think it has a lot of potential to be honest with you. I think, um, we could write a lot of funny gags with something like that. Either as a webisode or a short form series or like a, like a TV show on Hulu or something. I think rad roommates could be really, really hilarious. So I would, Anthony, I would love nothing more than to continue some rad roommates footage, but, um, time will tell. Now back to the Brides of Satan Blu-ray. What other special features can be found on the Blu-ray? Um, if I can remember, there's about. To be honest with you, I haven't watched the Blu-ray yet, and I don't. I don't know why. I'm, I guess I'm a, maybe I'm afraid to. Maybe I'm I'm scared to look at how it cut out. I, I just I have anxiety about it because it's my baby. You know, I'm so close to it, and that's probably why. Um, but I remember I put together a behind-the-scenes documentary that was, I think, when I cut it, it was about three hours long. And the distribution company said, there's no way we're going to put out a three-hour-long documentary. And I was like, why not? I think they're fun. I watched uh, seven or eight hours of the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary where they like did an hour on every episode. Like That, that was, shit was cool. And they were like, no way in hell. So I know there's a behind the scenes documentary, but I think it's been cut down to like 45 minutes or an hour. So hopefully they did a good job with that. There's also a full director and cinematographer commentary, one single commentary together that you can listen to. Uh, the Rad Roommate short film. And I can't really recall, recall what else. There was a bunch of stuff that we submitted, but you know, they were kind of like picked and choose what they wanted to put on the DVD and we were cool with it. What projects are you currently working on at the moment? Um, I'm working on two really exciting things right now that I am really amped about. Um, I've got about, like I said, four or five scripts that I'm ready to pitch and market. But the two that I really, really love, one is called House of the Succubus. And it's like a sexy, late night, thriller, showtime, Roger Corman, culty, USA up all night, tongue in cheek succubus movie that's casting right now really excited about it and the second one is called ceremony of the witch i don't want to give too many details away but that is about a a couple that uh kind of has an accident and it's a very it's a it's it's a romance film meets hellraiser and i'm really excited about ceremony of the witch and it's the the main project that i'm kind of plugging right now how can they find brides of satan um Blu-ray and VOD. Right now, uh, the best way to pick up the Blu-ray, which I do recommend because it is a double disc Blu-ray, does have the second disc, the special features, all the extra stuff. That's at www.darksidereleasing.com. You can just order it directly there. It is in Canadian, so it looks like it's a little more than U.S. dollars, but I think it's about like 23 bucks with shipping or 24 bucks with shipping. That's the first place to get it. We are also working on a VHS deal that is in the works, but is not official yet. So I can announce an official date. But if you want to watch it immediately right now, right after listening to this interview, you can go to Vimeo on your Apple TV, your Amazon Fire Stick, your Roku, your Android. I think it, it handles like seven or eight devices. As long as you're updated, I'm pretty sure you can just go on the Vimeo app. Vimeo has like an on-demand and you can watch it there. I think it's like Vimeo.com forward slash on demand slash Brides of Satan. 
something like that will get you there pretty quick. And I think you can rent it for three dollars, two ninety nine or a dollar ninety nine, or you can own it for I think eight ninety nine or nine ninety nine. So right now it's not on Amazon or Netflix or Shutter or any of those yet. But uh, you know, as we'll we'll see as things go on, we will be um, debuting in the, the uh, can film market in July. And that's when we'll we'll get out there for foreign and we'll start getting onto more VOD. But if you want to watch it right now, you can order it from um, DarksideReleasing.com or watch it on Vimeo.com uh, on demand. How can they find you and the film on social media? My IG is at Joe Bizarro Studios, and the film uh, IG is at Brides of Satan Movie. I'm also on Facebook at Joe Bizarro Studios, and there is a Brides of Satan Movie page on Facebook as well. And uh, tonight I realized that I actually am on Twitter. I didn't realize that I am, but I just, uh, I guess I just got back on Twitter. I'm on Twitter, too, at Joe Bizarro Studios. Joe, I want to thank you for coming on to the podcast. Thank you for having me. I mean, that was great. Rapid fire, man. Sorry if I talked too long, too much. No problem. Not at all. I'm a weirdo, baby. So why don't you kill me? (laughs) Well, thank you. For glad, coming glad I, on. Glad I made you laugh, man. <laughs> I was starting to think I was bombing the whole interview. No, you weren't. Right. I was just paying attention. Wait, are we cut? I hope we're still live. Yeah, we're it. still live. Let's do it live. All right. So what? Was it good or was it bad? <laughs> uh-huh. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Thank you for great, coming on. You too. Have a good day. Hey, have a great night, Anthony. We'll talk to you soon. Same here. Later, man. Every day, there's a family struggling with hospital bills to care for their sick child who is fighting an illness. There's a woman who is fighting breast cancer and is having trouble making ends meet while paying for their treatment. And there are burn victims that are going through treatments to heal their deep wounds. There is a charity in the horror community that helps these people. Scares That Care is an organization that helps families deal with the bills for their child. They help women get the treatment they need to fight breast cancer. And they help people who are dealing with severe burns get the help they need to heal. Scares That Care is a 100% volunteer organization and 501c3 nonprofit charity that is dedicated to helping these people in fighting real monsters. To find out more information or to donate to Scares That Care, you can go to www.scaresthatcare.org. Every donation helps Scares That Care fight real monsters. You'll find Anthony T's power and wrestling show on these social media platforms. On Facebook, Instagram, and the Slasher app at Anthony Power and Wrestling, and on Twitter at Anthony Power. You'll find new episodes on DocDiscussions.com, major podcast providers, and YouTube. On Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show on YouTube, I will be doing another video soon, as I pretty much abandoned the Black Friday Part 2 video, but I got another video that I'm probably going to film 
as I was over at Monster Mania, and I had a very good time at that convention. I may talk about that next episode, but I'll have a video showing off some of the stuff I picked up at that convention, and also next episode, I may also talk about AEW's Double or Nothing pay-per-view, so that's two topics I may be talking about next episode. With that, I want to thank you for listening to Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. If you like the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and other major podcast platforms. With that, I want to thank you for listening to Anthony T's Horror and Wrestling Show. Have a good day. Support Indie Horror and support Indie Wrestling.